Our scripture text for today's sermon comes from Isaiah 52, verses 13 through Isaiah 53, verse 12. Before we read this, though, do you believe in prophecy? You know, the kind where someone actually predicts a, a future event. Do you think that prophecy can exist? Or is it just merely chance or coincidence? During our Advent series over the past few weeks, we've uh, been studying several Old Testament uh, prophecies about Jesus Christ. And all of these were written before the birth of Christ. Isaiah 53 is one of the most famous prophecies about Jesus. So if, if, you, if you doubt today about who Jesus was or who Christians claim that he is, and what he did. Listen to this prophecy here and consider for yourself if it speaks to the God, to God himself, to the Jesus, the God man. And if it does, that changes everything. That means God has spoken. And it means that that will change our life both now and forever. So, Isaiah 52 Starting in verse 13, read along with me here. <clears throat> Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet he was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for this transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked 
and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Lord God, what an amazing prophecy. We ask, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see your Christ in your word here. Lord, we ask that you would reveal the arm of the Lord to us, that we may believe and, 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 and have our sins covered, and that, way, that we might be saved. We ask, Lord, that, that uh, we would see your suffering, O Christ, and, and, and learn how to respond rightly to, to, to you, Heavenly Father, and to those around us when we suffer as well. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Inconceivable. What movie is that from? The Princess Bride, yeah, yeah. It's uh, probably the most well-known single-word quote in, in, in all of movies. It's uh, said many times throughout the, the movie uh, by a Sicilian named Vizzini, who is the mastermind behind the kidnapping of Princess Buttercup. Vizzini prides himself in his intellect, but his mind is continually blown at how the dread pirate Roberts is able to overcome all obstacles in his pursuit to rescue Princess Buttercup. Everything Vizzini tries to do to kill the dread pirate Roberts utterly fails. Roberts just keeps on coming. It's just absolutely inconceivable to Vizzini. Now, Vizzini, he, he's not a great fighter, and so he knows he can't outduel Roberts. So he tries to kill him with his greatest strength, his intellect. He and Roberts, they, they agree to a game of wits to determine which of two cups has poison in it. And then, once Vizzini has chosen which cup he would drink, then they would both drink and then see who would survive. Now, if you've seen the movie, you, you know that it, it just it really doesn't go well for Vizzini, does it? He ends up being outwitted by Roberts, who actually put poison in both the cups. And as they both drank, he, uh, uh, then after that, he, he reveals that he had built up some immunity to that particular poison. Now, prophecy seems inconceivable 
to many of today's intellects. The supernatural isn't real because it just can't be intellectually proven. And so therefore prophecy doesn't exist. If anything, so-called prophecy is just, it's just merely chance or, or coincidence. The Old Testament prophecies of Jesus Christ are, however, they're, they're like the dread pirate Roberts. They continually blow the mind of the intellectual. As much as intellectual elites throughout the past 2,000 years have tried to do away with Jesus with various arguments, they cannot outwit him. He does not go away. He is a historical fact with prophecies that preceded him and could only be fulfilled by him. As we look at the prophecy here in Isaiah, we see more detail about this coming Messiah. He'll be a servant. He'll be rejected by men. He'll be despised. Now, now this seems odd, maybe inconceivable to us, because successful people and, and great rulers are, are, are often accepted and loved uh, by, the, the, by, by people, and, and, and they're, they're served rather than being servants. But Jesus is different. So today, let's consider Jesus as the rejected and despised servant. And then let's consider what that means for us if we are to follow him. The section in Isaiah 52 and 53 is the last of four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. It's the, it's the climactic song where the identity and mission of the suffering servant is, is revealed with such accuracy that it, it sounds as if it was written in the New Testament. But Isaiah was written after, not, not after Jesus' death, but, but rather hundreds of years before his birth. Let's now consider uh, the structure of this passage, and that will help explain our outline for today. This section has five stanzas to it, each with each stanza having, uh, having three verses. This passage, it's shaped like a mountain, with the first and last sections relating to each other, and then the second and fourth sections relating to each other, and then it all builds to the middle, third section, uh, verses 4 through 6, as the, this is the climax of this whole passage. We'll start by looking first at, uh, not, not, at the, not the very beginning of this servant song, but, but actually in the, more in the middle, uh, at the second and fourth passages, and how they speak of the despised servant and, and the nature of his rejection. Then we'll look at the climax of this passage, verses 4 through 6, and read, and read about the servant's work of atonement. That his atonement was the purpose of his rejection. And then finally we'll look at the bookends of this passage, the first and fifth stanzas, and see the servant exalted and the reward of his rejection. So first the nature of his rejection, then the purpose of his rejection, and then the reward of his rejection. So look with me now at Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, and then in a bit we'll jump over to the fourth stanza, verses 7 through 9. Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed 
what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 2 speaks of the servant uh, growing up like a young plant. Now this, this uh, picture of growth, uh, it reminds us of the birth of Christ and, and how, he, how he grew up as a young boy, a young child. Now the idea of, 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 of Jesus being born and, and, and the idea of baby Jesus is, is very attractive, isn't it? Baby Jesus, is, is, he's cute, he's cuddly. And around Christmas time, the, the culture by large uh, tends to tolerate baby Jesus. Every Christmas, secular music artists uh, with no professed faith in Christ will often come out with a Christmas album that even includes uh, perhaps a, a, a classic Christmas carol about Christ's birth. So baby Jesus, he's, he's, he's comfortable. He's non-threatening. So many people, they just like to keep baby Jesus as baby Jesus. They, uh, they don't want to look into what his life was about. They don't want to understand why he was even born in the first place. The same artists will never come out with a Good Friday album or an Easter album. Because Silent Night sells, but Oh Sacred Head Now Wounded doesn't. This little baby Jesus, as cute as he was, actually would come across to you and I as just a pretty normal baby. Verse 2 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus looked like a Jewish boy. And he grew up to look like a normal Jewish man. Most leaders of the world have strong physical traits. But Jesus would be different. Jesus not only came to, to blend in as a, as, a, as a poor Jewish boy, he, he came to be despised, to be rejected, as we see in verse 3. As soon as he was born, King Herod wanted to kill him, right? And he and Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt. So as soon as he was born, he was rejected. And, and throughout his three years of, of, his, of his earthly ministry, there were plots by the religious elite to have him arrested and executed. And as we know, he eventually was. Jesus was also rejected by his followers. Crowds of people followed him at times, but... That was just sometimes just only because they wanted to see a miracle or they wanted to get food. And once Jesus started preaching, the crowds often left. Jesus' own brothers didn't accept him for who he truly was at first. And then, of course, there's Judas, right? One of the twelve who infamously betrayed him. And, but then not only that, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, denies even being associated with Jesus once Jesus is arrested and on the cross. So, Jesus was rejected by not only those who hated him, but also by those who said that they loved him. And the same is true today of us. 
We too, though we say we love Jesus and we sing songs of praise to Him, we often reject Him when He becomes inconvenient or, or, or an embarrassment or, or a liability to us. When an opportunity to share our faith with someone else comes along, we often remain silent or, or may even try to come across as an unbeliever to others uh, so that we're just not socially awkward. Sometimes we just aren't any better than Peter, are we? There is sin and fear dwelling in each one of us that, that, that tempts us to, to reject and despise Jesus and His holiness and, and His call for us to take up our cross and, and follow Him no matter the cost. There's a, there's a push within us for us to, to accept the parts of Jesus that, that, that work for us and to reject the, the teachings that for some reason or another just aren't a good fit. Jesus came to be despised and rejected even by his own people, even by us. In verses 7 through 9, the fourth stanza, if we jump over there, we see that Jesus, the despised servant, is rejected to the point of death. To the point of death. Read with me verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. So Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter of the cross. Unlike lambs who are silent as, as they go to their deaths, because they're oblivious as to what's about to happen, Jesus was silent while knowing completely what was going to happen to him. That he would be whipped, beaten, spit on, tortured, and nailed to a cross. His death was gruesome. When you look back at Isaiah 52, verse 14, it says that, that his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. J. Alec Motier in his Isaiah commentary says this, that the servant's sufferings brought such a disfigurement that those who saw it said not only, is that he, but is that human? His death was gruesome. We see in chapter 53, verses 8 and 9, that this suffering servant would be rejected to the point of death. He was cut off out of the land of the living. In verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although Jesus was, was innocent of all sin, his people, the people of Israel, rejected him and killed him. We see here a prophecy that Jesus would make his grave with a rich man. 
a rich man. Now who's that? Well, I believe that, that this is a prophecy of Jesus being buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, whom Matthew, the, the, uh, uh, Matthew writes in his gospel several times, he notes that, that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. It shows that, that this despised man, who is shamefully marred and brutally killed, would still receive the honor of a rich man's burial. That's odd, isn't it? Only Jesus fits this prophecy to a T. Now, let's move to the, the center of this prophecy, verses 4 through 6. And consider the atoning servant, the very purpose of his rejection. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here is the purpose of Christmas. This is why Jesus came to earth. He lived to die. He was a man of sorrows, not only because of the suffering that he experienced, but also because he carried our sorrows. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced by the nails of the cross for this great purpose, to take the punishment for our transgressions, for our law-breaking. And that's what a transgression is. It's, it's breaking the law. And, and not, 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 not a civil law necessarily, but, but God's moral law that all people are born under and are held accountable to, regardless of whatever civil law their country has. And now look at uh, the middle of verse 5. It says, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus was rejected by men and smitten by God to the point of death so that we could have the opposite, so that we could have peace with God and man. He was rejected so that we could be accepted. I mean, it just seems inconceivable for this to happen. It, does, it just doesn't make sense unless you see that Jesus' mission was to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. He was our substitute. He took our sin. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was wounded so that we would be healed. In verse 6, there's a, there's a change of focus from the servant to us. Now, in case we thought that, uh, that the servant was taking on the sorrows and sins of, of people who uh, were fairly decent and, and, uh, and worthy of, uh, of, uh, of saving, Isaiah describes us in very unflattering terms. We're like sheep who go their own way, departing from their shepherd. We go to wherever our heart 
desires. This waywardness is treason against the God of the universe. It's the sin of spiritual adultery against God. The sin of rebellion. And yet, as terrible as these sins are, these are the sins that the Lord laid on Jesus. These sins of ours are the worst types of sins, the most undeserving of grace and of a substitute to take our place. And these sins are deserving of full justice and wrath. But Jesus willfully and humbly and inconceivably bore all our sins in order to draw God's wrath upon himself and away from us. This is a love worth singing about every single Christmas and every single week throughout the year. You won't understand the manger until you've understood the cross. Now let's go to the bookends of this uh, final servant song. The first and fifth stanzas, starting in, verse, uh, starting in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And, and let's see the servant exalted and the reward of his rejection. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. The servant song starts with an enigma, something that's very puzzling to understand. How could someone be so exalted, yet have been brought so low, and yet have such an impact on the nations? How could someone be both marred beyond recognition through bloody torture, and yet be high and lifted up and exalted and impact the nations and even silence kings? The answer to this puzzle can only be found in this prophecy pointing and being fulfilled in Jesus' substitutionary atonement, his death, and then his resurrection and reign. No other person in history fits anything close to this prophecy. In verse 13, there is a threefold superlative of exaltation. This servant is high and lifted up and shall be highly exalted. Very exalted, as the Hebrew puts it. This too just seems inconceivable. That, that a servant should receive the highest exaltation imaginable. And then it seems even more inconceivable that this servant would both die and be highly exalted. The only way to understand this is seeing is to see this prophecy as Christ as of Christ's resurrection. We see more evidence that this is a prophecy of Christ's resurrection in the fifth and final stanza, verses 10 through 12. 
Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is just amazing. Here we see that the servant is rewarded after his death. After his death. Look at the middle of verse 10. It says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. So when Christ makes his offering for sin on the cross, then he is rewarded with seeing his offspring and having prolonged life. Now, how does that make any sense for someone to die and then be rewarded with prolonged life? Only the resurrection makes sense of this. Jesus was, he was never married and, and uh, he, he never had any children, any biological children. But it's through his death that he turns us wayward sheep into his offspring and to sons of God. He adopts us, transforms us as his enemies into his sons and making us co-heirs of eternal life. Verse 11 prophesies that this servant will be righteous, but will put on and bear the iniquities or sins of his people in order to make them righteous. You cannot have a right standing before God without being sinless according to God's holy law. So Jesus takes the sins of his people so that we could be counted righteous. Jesus' very soul was in anguish on the cross. And through his suffering, he was able to see victory and see each of his offspring being counted righteous in God's sight. Because his righteousness, now throughout redemption history, is being given to them when they put their faith in him. And this reality, what Jesus sees here, this satisfied Jesus. Do you want to know the heart of Jesus? Do you want to know what satisfies him the deepest? It's right here. When Jesus completed his mission on the cross to save his people. When Jesus said his final words, It is finished. He said that with a deep, deep satisfaction. Look now at the middle of verse 12. And, and let's, let's look at the verb tenses. It's through this that we'll see more evidence of the resurrection being prophesied about. The verb tenses. So the servant has, he's poured his soul to death. That's the past tense. He was numbered with the transgressors. 
Past tense. He bore the sin of many. Past tense. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Present tense. That's present tense. This prophecy, what, what it's doing is it's looking to the future when the servant's death will be in the past. And the servant will then, in the future, be presently making intercession for his people as the high priest. For those of us, making intercession for those of us who are transgressors, lawbreakers, who though we have put our faith in Jesus as our only hope for the forgiveness of our sins. Now that brings us to the end of this amazing prophecy. And we've barely scratched the surface. This, uh, this, this prophecy, Isaiah 53, is quoted more times than any other chapter of Isaiah in the New Testament. So we've just scratched the surface of, 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 of everything that's, uh, that's, that's in this amazing prophecy. So now, how do we respond in light of all this? Now, if you're here today, or if you're listening online, and if you've been a, a, someone who's, who's had some doubts of who Jesus was and, and is, I would ask you to seriously consider Isaiah 53. Does it not accurately predict Jesus' life, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his reign, and his intercession? Does it not accurately predict everything that Jesus did? I'd encourage you, doubt no more. And believe on the Lord Jesus and turn away from your sin. And you will be forgiven. You will be counted righteous. Upon Him will be your sins. You will become a child of God and you will come into a new family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Now let me speak to those of us here who have already put our faith in Christ and, 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 and see what, how are we to respond in light of this passage. Jesus taught us that just as he was despised and rejected by men, so also we should be expect we should expect to be rejected as well. In John 15 verses 18 through 20, Jesus says, "If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you." Remember the world Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. And we often think that we, we, we get a pass from persecution from not fitting in with this world. But we're not greater than our master, are we? If Jesus was rejected, we can expect to experience this rejection too. So let's expect to be misunderstood, rejected, even hated 
by people and powers of this world. And when we are rejected, let's look to Christ as our strength and our example of how we ought to respond rightly to God and to others in the midst of persecution. As 1 Peter 2, as we read earlier today, as 1 Peter 2 says, if we are reviled, let us follow in Christ's footsteps and not revile in return. If we suffer, let us not threaten those who persecute us, but let's entrust ourselves to a just judge who will not let any persecution go unpunished. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. So brothers and sisters, let's not be surprised if we are despised. But let's turn our eyes to our example that we have in Christ and endure suffering with a hope that is inconceivable to this world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you've revealed Jesus, the arm of the Lord, to us. We praise you that we have believed, we have received this suffering servant's righteousness. We've received forgiveness because of his rejection. We thank you that that Christ took the wrath that was going to be poured out on us. He took that wrath in our place. Help us, Lord, to, when we celebrate Christmas, when we think about Christmas, help us to not detach Christmas from the cross. Help us to always remember the purpose for why Jesus came to earth. And Lord, as we go forth and as we may experience rejection from this world, may we respond rightly to you and to others around us, just as Jesus did. And not revile or attack, but rather trust that you will judge justly. Thank you, Jesus, for your death on the cross. We pray this now all in the name of Jesus. Amen.